What have you decided God can't do? Who needs to be saved in your family that you've quit praying for in such a way where you you don't think there's ever going to be a divine moment? Or have you forgotten? Have you forgotten that a divine moment is really all that it takes? And you've been thinking for years, if they could just get convinced of this, and if they could just believe this, and if someone could just answer this question, and this question, and this question, if if you could get back to remembering that one single moment at the burning bush, it'll take care of all that. Push away a few plates. Fast for a while. Pray before God. Fall on our face before God. Plead with God because the Bible tells us God heard the outcry of his children. God, we need you. We need you. We need you. One divine moment, one encounter with God would forever change Moses' life and the entire nation of Israel. One moment with God would change things forever. Listen in as Pastor Joplin preaches on Moses' encounter with God at the burning bush. A little bit of background before getting to the text this morning. When we read Exodus chapter 3 and verse 1, Moses has been in hiding or in the wilderness, if you will, for about 40 years. Now, Moses had been born into Egypt during a period of time when Israel had grown great in numbers. Now, granted, they were still slaves in Egypt, but Pharaoh started to get a little nervous and thought, man, these slaves of ours are really growing in number, and if we were to get attacked by an enemy, maybe our slaves would turn on us, join the enemy, and fight alongside them to destroy us. So Pharaoh said, we've got to do some population control. And here's the plan that he had. We're basically going to kill all the baby boys when they're born so that as time goes on, there's not, you know, men there to reproduce. Moses' mom gave birth to Moses during that decree and tried to keep Moses as long as she could, but as he got a little bit older, not much, old enough that his cry was a loud cry. She put him basically in a little basket of some sort, put him down the river, and ultimately prayed to God that somehow God would spare his life. And if you know the story of Moses, what happened was his little boat thingy, whatever you want to call it, uh, it gets stuck in some weeds. And Pharaoh's daughter is there. They hear this crying baby. She sends one of her you know, maidens to get it, And turns out it's a little boy. And they know exactly what's happened. The mama has let this boy down the river hoping that it doesn't die and that somebody has compassion on it. And that's exactly what took place. The uh, daughter of Pharaoh basically says, hey, this baby still needs milk. He's not even weaned yet. And so find me one of the uh, Hebrew women that's nursing and let her nurse this baby until he's weaned. And Moses is actually able to go back to his mother. There's no indication that they knew that was who it was. They just thought it was some random Hebrew woman that was nursing. But he was able to go back to his mother. She was able to finish nursing Moses. But once he was weaned, she had to give him away to Pharaoh's daughter. And Moses is raised up in royalty. He's really treated like a prince in the land of Egypt, 
with all of the wealth and the protections and the fame and the prestige that comes along with being a prince. But as Moses gets older, he's a young man, 40. He, I'm 41, so I like young man. <clears throat> so, anyways, Moses walks up one day and he sees one of the taskmasters, one of Pharaoh's kind of people that ran the slaves, just being brutal to some of these slaves. And Moses knows that these slaves are really his kinsmen. And Moses, in a moment of rage, follows this taskmaster somewhere and kills him. He murders the man. You'd be surprised to know the number of people guilty of murder or um, standing alongside and watching it happen that eventually God transformed their lives and he used them for great things when you study the scriptures. It's actually fascinating. But Moses was one of those men. Shortly thereafter, Moses walks up on some of his kinsmen and they're arguing and they're fighting and Moses gets in the middle of it. He basically says, hey boys, what are you doing fighting? We're brothers, right? We're all kinsmen. We need to be on one team. And one of them looks at him and says, who are you to judge us? What are you going to do, kill us like you did the Egyptian? And Moses realized in that moment that whatever he thought he had done in secret, somehow, some way, it was known. And he thought, Pharaoh is going to figure this out. It'll eventually get to the ears of Pharaoh, and I'm going to be killed. And so Moses runs to hide in this wilderness where God appears to him. But Moses is there for 40 years. You know, when he started his journey to escape, I don't know that he ever planned on being there for 40 years. When he decided he was just going to find a place to get away for a while until the wrath of Pharaoh was appeased, for one reason or another, here we are 40 years later and he's still in the wilderness. He's still away from where, you know, he was supposed to be and where God had placed him to, to, to raise him up. And if Moses has Moses' way, he's just going to die here in this land. But God had different plans. And God shows up to Moses and he speaks to him through a burning bush. And this moment would change Moses' life forever. One of the things that fascinates me about this particular story is that Moses was a murderer who had been on the run, hiding for 40 years, yet he did not need his history erased. He just needed a burning bush moment. He needed an encounter with God. And what's fascinating is not only does he no longer hide from Pharaoh, but this same man is going to march back into Egypt and start making demands to Pharaoh. His history is still in place. This is the awesome thing about God. God has a way of changing our lives in such a way, no, it doesn't erase the past, at least not in this world. It brings us into right standing with God. But you don't have to have your entire past erased in order for God to do a great work in your life. 
You don't have to have everything that you've ever done somehow vanish from your memory and the memory of everybody else in your life in order for God to do such a work in your life that changes your life forever and changes the life of everybody else around you. I want us to look this morning at this encounter with God at the burning bush, and I have three lessons from it I want us to see. Number one this morning, notice that one divine moment, one divine moment can change the course of your entire life. This moment in Moses' life was the moment that changed his entire life. Everything that would follow, all the rest of it, all that we really know of Moses, all that really made him famous, going to Pharaoh, leading the people out, leading them through the Red Sea, the giving of the law, all of it happened because of this divine moment in his life, this divine encounter with God, and one divine moment would change his life forever. You need to know this morning that one simple meeting with God can change your life forever. Notice it doesn't only change Moses' life. Man, I just pray the Holy Spirit will help us this morning to really see the truth of what happens when God shows up. And it just takes one time. Not only did it change Moses' life, but it changed the entire nation of Israel forever. Millions of people, their lives would be changed forever. Not because they met with God, but because Moses met with God. One man, one encounter with God, one divine moment would forever radically change the history of Israel. Not only does it change Israel, it changes Egypt. You will find that a divine encounter with God will change everybody or impact, I like to use that word impact, everybody in your world of influence. It impacted Egypt. No, they did not repent. No, Pharaoh did not turn to God and become a follower of God. But... Over and over and over and over and over again, God would reveal himself to Egypt. He would prove to them that he was the one true God with all power on heaven and on earth. And they would reject him and their hearts would get harder. But nonetheless, here's the point I want us to see this morning Moses' divine moment with God would impact the entire country of Egypt. One divine moment. It can change everything. Things change when a man or a woman encounters God. Brothers and sisters, if we could really wrap our minds around this, if we could receive this with our hearts, it would change the very way we view church. It would change the way that we pray. It would change the way that we live. We have been conditioned to believe 
that in order for change to occur in somebody's life, they need a great, you know, 12 or 47 step process. It's going to take years. You're going to have to start here and it's going to take a little bit of time here and a little bit of time here. I'm telling you something. When Moses met with God, it changed everything. One moment in time. It'll change the way we see church when we understand that if God will just show up, one divine moment can change people's lives. Change the way that we pray about. Change what we come expecting for. But we have been conditioned because we are seeing fewer and fewer divine moments with God. We have been conditioned to look for other methods. And I'm telling you, they don't work. They don't. The only thing that works is a true divine encounter with God. And the incredible thing about it is, when it's a real divine encounter with God, it always works. Moses couldn't leave unchanged. And I'll tell you something else about a divine encounter with God. It will change the man or woman who has a divine moment. It'll impact their life. It'll impact their world. And when it happens, listen to me clearly, they will know it. They will know. And if you don't know, you need to be praying for a divine encounter with God. Changes everything. I think part of the reason that our um, current state of Christianity is so flip-floppy, the reason so many are talked into making a profession of faith, praying a prayer, joining a church, whatever it may be. The reason that so many are flip-floppy, then they're here one day, and then they're gone the next. They're here one year, and then they're gone the next. It's, it's quite simple, because they never really met God. They haven't had an encounter with God. But when you've had an encounter with God, it will change you forever. It's not possible to wonder about the reality of God when you've actually met him. It's just not possible. What are the chances that Moses had this encounter and then got walking down the road and started thinking, I wonder if God's even real at all. I mean, it's silly, isn't it? I had a very similar encounter, and this is why for 21 years, never, ever, 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 ever have I wondered if God was real. Never. And no, it's not because I just believe by faith. It's because I had an encounter with God. Changed my life like that. I went from being a drug-addicted, drug-dealing, wicked, evil, sinful person, living selfishly for myself, no hope in life, like that radically transformed. I mean, I walked in the doors that way. I knelt down that way. But when I got up, I was the person you see now in a moment of time because I had a divine moment where God himself revealed himself to me. Nobody could ever take that away. And brothers and sisters, one of the reasons we see so much just weak Christianity is because people aren't encountering God. We're trying to find other ways to make them stay. Trying to find other ways to get them into the church. 
I want to say it again. When you understand the value of a divine moment with God, you realize it will change everything. It changes what you expect. It changes the way you pray for your lost loved ones. It changes the way you pray for service. We don't need like God make us wiser so that we can argue better. It doesn't work. Listen, I used to be what I would call wrapped up in Christian apologetics. If you don't know what that word is, kind of a big word, silly word. It basically means to be able to give a reason for what you believe. If you're here for Easter, I spent about 20 minutes doing apologetics where I dealt with the factual, scientific reasons for the resurrection. Now, when I was first saved, I spent about three to four years, I mean, that's, I, I was wrapped up in that stuff. I could talk to you for hours and hours and hours about the age of the earth, the flood, the Bible, how it was formed, supposed contradictions within the Bible, why people lived longer a certain period of time and why they live less time now. The facts for the resurrection, I mean, I could talk about it and 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 talk about it. I'm going to tell you something, and I was good at it. Never once, ever once, did I see one person saved through it. Not one time. And I know some super good apologists. I'm not going to call them by name. Maybe God's really called them into that realm. But here's the truth. To this date, I have never heard of one person that was transformed, saved, and radically made new through sitting around talking about those types of things. Never. And it was about three to four years in. Man, people would bring people to me, or they'd be like, you got to meet with so-and-so and and convince them of this. If they could just see it through the way we see it, they have all these issues and questions that need answers. And I'm not saying there is not a time and place for it. Here's what I am saying. Moses, after he met with God at the burning bush, didn't need a list of answers. And what I'm telling you is, I had a lot of questions before I was a Christian. But when I actually encountered God, I didn't need the answers anymore even though I didn't know what they were. Yes, there were still some things I wanted to know how it all fit. But when I encountered God, it changed everything in my life. And what I'm telling you this morning is that one divine moment has the power to change everything in your life. Number two this morning. Notice that divine moments are often God's answers to our prayers. First of all, from our text in verse 7, I'm going to piece some of it together. But the Lord said, and I'm quoting, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry. I know their suffering. He said, I have heard their cry. The type of prayer that we're talking about here is not some whimsy prayer which we have been trained to pray. It was not some whimsy prayer like, God, you are sovereign. Your will will always come to pass. So if you would like to free us, then do so. 
If not, we are fine being slaves the rest of our lives. That's not the prayer here. This is a cry to God. God, bring deliverance. God, we do not believe this is your will for your children to live defeated and in shame, to be born as slaves and to die as slaves. This is no life for the children of God. And it's a cry to God. God, move from your throne and deliver us. This is the cry that moves the heart of God. And you will find that the divine moments recorded in Scripture are very often God's answers to sincere prayer. I want to look at a couple with you this morning. I think about Elijah on Mount Carmel where God sends the fire from heaven to lick up all the water that's around the altar and light that altar on fire. And we see that just before it happens, Elijah stands. He prays out loud for the whole world to hear. And he basically says, God, show us that you are God. Once again, show us that you are the God of heaven and earth and answer by fire and fire falls. I think about the glory filling Solomon's temple. I'd encourage you to read 2 Corinthians, excuse me, 2 Chronicles chapter 7 later today. And we see that the glory of God fills Solomon's temple in such a way that all of the people and all of the priests like have to get away from it. Could you imagine if the power of God was so real in this place that we were like, we got to get out of here. Man, that would be awesome. Now, it happened in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, but I want you to read, listen to what it says. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven. I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, the divine moments when the fire falls whether it's the fire at the burning bush, whether it's the fire falling on Mount Carmel, whether it's the fire coming down when Solomon's temple was filled with glory, when the fire of God falls, it is most often because God answered the sincere prayers of his children. You think about Hannah. You might remember 1 Samuel chapter 1. Hannah had no children. She was broken over it. And listen to what this tells us. 1 Samuel chapter 1, it says that she prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. Can I say it again? This wasn't some, oh God, if you just want to give me a child, then do. But if not, I'm totally satisfied with it because I just know that you're good. That is not what she's praying here. And I, I don't mean to hurt your feelings if you pray that way, but you need to do a little looking biblically at the type of prayer that moves the heart of God. She wept bitterly. She cried out to God. And you know what happened. God gave her Samuel. Last example. I want you to remember Nehemiah. So Nehemiah gets word that the walls are broken down in Jerusalem, and he's ashamed. And if you know the story of Nehemiah, God answers in a miraculous way. The walls are built in 52 days. It's an incredible feat. 
these walls that have been broken down for years are rebuilt in 52 days. That's less than two months, people. And these people, like everybody who was afraid, nobody's doing a thing. All of a sudden, they're united with faith. Some of them are working with a sword in the hand and working with a tool in the left. They're working 24 hours a day. Some of them are on shift getting their sleep while the others are working. It's a miracle. 52 days and the walls of Jerusalem are rebuilt. But I want to read to you where it started. Nehemiah had heard that the walls were broken down, and I quote Nehemiah chapter 1 and verse 4, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Everything that will happen after verse 4 of Nehemiah chapter 1, the miracle of the walls being built in 52 days all of it happened after he sat and he wept and he fasted and he prayed for days. I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, the divine moments where God answers are so often followed by the sincere prayers, outcries of his children. And so now I ask this question. What are you praying for? It's amazing to me how we will blame the lack of power in the church, the lack of manifestation of God moving amongst us. We'll blame it on God. We'll blame it on the sovereignty of God. We'll blame it on the will of God. We'll blame it on the timing of God. If, if we have wept, and fasted, and prayed, and cried out to God. And then, there is no answer. Then we're in a position to say, it must not be the will of God. But not until then, brothers and sisters. Not a moment sooner than that. And when I look at us as a people, I don't see the church broken over the state of the church. I see people that are satisfied. I see a people that we are just completely satisfied. We don't even have time to seek the face of God. It's like, hey, getting an hour of church in, you're welcome, pastor. You're welcome, God. It's all I got to give. God's lucky if he gets five minutes of our day. Quick little devotion that we can put in. A couple minutes of prayer before we eat or go to bed. And we've been conditioned to come in and do service over and 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 over again. We need some good music. We need some good preaching. We need to leave pumped up. And we're going to be so deflated next week, brother, we need you to do it again. And we look around. Why is there no divine moments? Oh, I, I know why. Is God must not want to show up like he used to. Garbage. God is the same God yesterday, today, and forever. And he does not change. 
What are we praying for? I'm telling you, when you get a hold of the reality that one divine moment can and will change everything, it'll change the way we pray. We don't need better plans. We don't need better methods. We don't need find, you know, new ways to stay relevant or match the current trend of the culture because people are only going to listen if we look kind of like what they're used to. Let me tell you what will change everything, a divine moment with God. That's what we need to be praying for. Maybe it's in a loved one's life that you're praying for to be saved. Maybe it's in your own life and you need some things to change in your life. You don't need me to talk you into change. You don't need me to convince you into change. What you need is to meet God at your burning bush. And I'm telling you, when you do, it will change everything in your life. Divine moments are often God's answers to our prayers. One of the things that burdens me is that I just know, I know it. We're not out crying to God anymore. Not not really. We're not, we're satisfied. We are totally good. Yeah, we want God to change that party and that political party and God to do some things over here and it'd be nice if I could get a little bonus or a raise so I could get a few more things. But generally speaking, honestly, we're good. There's no brokenness. There's no weeping before God bitterly. There's no burden of Nehemiah. We don't even want to be told we need to be burdened. We want to come, be encouraged to know that God's on our side and that we just need to keep going and things are going to get even better. But I'm talking about the type of change that changes a people, that changes the people who meet God, the people who know God and everybody in their life. That's what we need more than anything, brothers and sisters. Number three this morning, what God has done before, he can do now. You know, we have got to believe that with all of our heart. A.W. Tozer said it this way, anything that God has ever done, he can do now. Anything that God has ever done anywhere, he can do here. Anything that God has ever done for anyone, he can do for you. This is the truth about God. He's unchanging, brothers and sisters. And I watched it happen. I've seen it happen. I've seen divine moments change people's lives. I watched it change my life. I've already spoken about that moment. I've watched it change Troy's life. There he is, shaking his head. Troy's son... Just got on fire for God, got saved, hadn't been saved long. He was not saved here at this church, but he was saved, and he showed up at this church. And uh, was going to donate something here to the church. And Troy's like, no, I'm going to go check up on those people stealing from my son. Didn't you? That's why he showed up. That's the attitude he showed up with when he walked through the doors. And that morning, 
without any intentions of encountering God on that day, Troy Caps had a divine moment where the God of heaven and earth opened his eyes, opened his heart, revealed himself to Troy, saved him, and he's never been the same since. Watch it happen with Brother Kevin Wilkes. A lot of Kevin's story, a lot like mine. He's ashamed, don't like to talk about it from the past. Kevin used to be a drunk. One of the worst drunks you've ever met. I don't even remember how many years it was, but could never go more than seven days without drinking. And most of the time he drank from the time he woke up to the time he went to bed. During that period of his life, Kevin had a wife that got baptized and he was too drunk to go and didn't go. That divorce eventually happened. Brokenness all over. Kevin meets Kelly. They're married, and Kelly gets invited to a women's ministry here. She gets saved, and it's time for her to get baptized. And old Kevin's mad as a hornet. He's mad at church. He's mad at God. He's mad at church people. And he's pretty much mad his wife is getting baptized. But he's thinking to himself, I ain't going to let it happen to me again where another one of my wives gets baptized and I'm not there. So he shows up here in that spirit. That's the attitude he walked in with. We had a little boy in a wheelchair preaching. Such a high squealing voice, you can't hardly tell what he says. He has to speak through a trach and his mom's sitting there interpreting for him. About halfway through the sermon, the miracle of the divine moment happens and God opens Kevin's heart and God speaks to Kevin and says, Kevin, you've never taken up your cross and followed me. And Kevin went home that night and ultimately fell on his face before God, confessed his sins and turned his heart to God. And in a moment, I mean a divine moment, God radically and forever changed Brother Kevin Wilkes' life. Brothers and sisters, we could do this all morning. What God has ever done, he can do now. What have you given up on in your life? What have you decided God can't do? Who needs to be saved in your family that you've quit praying for in such a way where you, you don't think there's ever going to be a divine moment? Or have you forgotten? Have you forgotten? that a divine moment is really all that it takes. And you've been thinking for years, if they could just get convinced of this, and if they could just believe this, and if someone could just answer this question, and this question, and this question, if, if you could get back to remembering that one single moment at the burning bush, it'll take care of all that. Push away a few plates. Fast for a while. Pray before God, fall on our face before God, plead with God because the Bible tells us God heard the outcry of his children. God, we need you, we need you, we need you. We get so impatient. So instead, we build programs, methods, but they don't work. At best, they produce a very minimal behavioral modification. But burning bush moments, one divine moment 
has the power to completely and totally radically transform a person in a moment of time. What do you need God to do now? What do you need God to do here this morning? What do you need God to do for you? Do you need to be saved? You know, nothing could be more important than being saved. Nothing. And one of the things I'm really hesitant to do is ever tell people they are saved. I've been asked by a lot of people, struggling to know if they're saved. There's some of you hearing the sound of my voice. You know who you are, and you can testify to this. I, will, I work really hard to not tell you. Because here's what I know. Moses didn't need anybody to talk to him after he walked away from the burning bush to tell him he just had an encounter with God. Here's what I know. When I truly got saved, I didn't need you to tell me. I knew. Now, what I'm about to say really applies to adults. Sometimes it's more difficult for children that are saved at a young age and there's not this radical turning point. Sometimes it is a little bit different, okay? But generally speaking, I'm dealing with adults. And they're kind of confused on whether they're saved or not because they don't really have a super deep love for God. They tend to typically go through the motions. They continue to stay in the same old sins and strongholds of their life, and they want to know if they're saved or not. And most of the time, I am a thousand miles away from saying, oh, yeah, you're saved, brother. Did you say that prayer and mean it in your heart? When you've really met with God, you'll know. You won't need me to tell you. Completely, radically, it'll change your life. And if you don't know, you need to know. My advice to people that are in that situation is, look, you need to trust a couple of things. You need to trust that God would never turn away anybody who truly wanted to be saved. That's the reason Jesus died. So we know that he came to seek and save the lost. So there's nobody that he would ever turn away who truly wanted to be saved. Let's start with that. Number two, you need to know that God has the power to make himself known to you. And if you don't know that you know that you know, you need to pray as if you were about to split hell wide open. And if I was you, I wouldn't go to sleep. I would pray all night long. I would fast. I would do whatever it takes. And you cry out to God and you tell God, God, I need to be saved. I need to know that I know you and that you know me. And you pray and you pray and you pray and you refuse to give up until you know that you're saved. And I tell those folks, when that happens, you come tell me that you're saved there's it changes everything when you've had a divine moment with God it's an entirely different world than knowing about God some of you have heard me use this analogy before but you know we all know about a lot of people I use this analogy in the first service so I'll stick with it today I know a lot about Barack Obama. I can tell you that he was the president of the United States previously to Trump. I can tell you that he was in office for eight years. I can tell you a lot about the platform that he ran on. I can tell you that he has a wife named Michelle Obama. I can tell you that he has two daughters. I can tell you a lot about his policies. I can tell you what I didn't like. I can tell you what I did like. I, I can tell you a lot about Barack Obama. In fact, if you wanted to, you and I, after service, could sit around and literally talk for an hour about Barack Obama. But I have never met the man. 
I don't know him. I've never looked him in the face. And to my knowledge, I've never been within a hundred mile radius of him. So it is with most people in Jesus. We can talk about it for hours. You know all the things to say about him. You know all about him. You've studied him. You've heard about him. But you've never met him. You've never had your true divine moment where you came face to face with him. And he changed your life in a moment. And I'm going to tell you that moment changes everything. And when it happens, you'll know. You won't need me to tell you. You'll know. This morning as our worship team gets in place, I want to talk to a second group of people this morning. Maybe you're here but you're, and you're saved, but your fire has dwindled, spiritually speaking. Where there once used to be this great, all-consuming passion for God, now it's fairly empty. Now there's not a lot of power in your life spiritually. Where there once used to be a burning flame of passion and desire for God, it's just kind of a dwindling smoke with some coals. And yes, everybody can look at it and they know what that smoke's about. They know what those coals are about. They know what once used to be. But you're not on fire anymore for God. You know, Satan has a way of doing this. Sometimes it's through tragedy. Sometimes tragedy will come. If you remember, it's really what Satan accused Job of. Pastor Tony preached about it just last week. But Satan accused Job. He said, oh yeah, the only reason Job's, you know, he serves you so much is because you give him everything. But you take away all that he has. You bring tragedy into his life. He'll curse you to your face, God. That's one strategy that Satan has is I am absolutely going to ruin your life and turn you away from God. For those who aren't foolish enough to take that bait, often he's got other methods, okay? So you're not going to go there. I'm going to give you a promotion and you're going to make more money than you've ever made, but it's going to cost you about 70, 80 hours of your life every week. And now all of a sudden I don't have time for the things of God. I don't have time to really seek God in the, in the prayer closet. I don't have time for true intimate fellowship. I don't have time to be committed to the house of God. But by golly, I'm successful. I'm telling you, Satan has everything in between. He'll do everything he can. Now, I want you to follow me, and I'm done this morning. I want you to think about the irony of how Satan attacks us. At the end of the day, it's ultimately to try to pull us away from God. It's to get us off to the side to separate us from God. You know why? Because it's in those moments when we're with God, where the divine moments happen, that we become unshakable. That we become so certain that it does not matter where this leads. If God has met me in the burning bush and God has told me to walk back up into Egypt and go tell Pharaoh to let the people go, okay, because God is with me. 
This morning, maybe you need to be saved. This morning, maybe you're a Christian and your fire has dwindled. Brothers and sisters, what we need is a divine encounter with God. There may be a few people here who are experiencing what I talked about with Troy and Kevin, where you walked in this morning and never anticipated whatever's happening in your heart to be happening right now. And this might be your divine moment. And in a moment, you better respond. Do not say no to God. But there may be some of you where you recognize something this morning, that what you need is a new and fresh divine encounter with God. And that's probably not going to happen just because we open up the altars. But it is a good place to start and be honest with God and call out to God and cry out to God. And remember that divine moments are often God's response to our prayers. And it's time to get honest with God. God, I have fallen away. God, I'm not who I used to be. God, I, don't, I really don't. I've lost my first love. I still believe in you. You're still God. I'm still saved. But that fire that once used to consume me where you are all that I thought about. God, you and I both know that's been gone a long time. And you need to hit your knees and you need to confess that to God. And you need to figure out what you've allowed to come into your life that has come before God. And you need to repent of that thing. And you need to ask God, God, reveal yourself to me afresh. God, show me yourself. God, bring me to a burning bush moment in my life where you send the fire from heaven and rekindle this flame in my heart.